This is Respecting Health. Hi, I'm Rod Pahovsky. In the first episode, I spoke with Carlos Torelli about culture and its relationship to health from an academic perspective. And recall his pointing out even how even the very concept of medicine and health can vary among cultures and that people have different ideas about their relationship with the system and their caregivers and the state. So in this episode, we'll hear about these things and a few others, but from the physician perspective, what effect do these values have on the relationship between patient and physician? What's the physician experience in such an unpredictable environment? And what about the physician's values and the integration of technology and other factors? All good questions. Our guest today is Dr. Charles Alessi, the Chief Clinical Officer at Edito Health. Dr. Alessi is a physician based in London with over 35 years of experience in all aspects of policy and clinical practice in the UK and globally. Previous major roles include Global Chief Clinical Officer at HIMSS, Senior Advisor to Public Health England, Chairman of the National Association of Primary Care, and a member of World Health Organization expert panels around neurosciences and dementia risk reduction. Dr. Alessi also advises the chief executive of the International Association of Public Health Institutes and the new public health agency in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He's widely published and recently co-authored Increase Your Brain Ability and Reduce Your Risk of Dementia, published by Oxford University Press. Oh, and one other thing I want to mention... As you listen, during the recording, because we're all busy, there are a few times when you'll hear electronic notifications. So don't be alarmed. It's not you. It's us. And now on to that interview with Dr. Charles Alessi. I guess I just wanted to start with you have had so many different experiences around the world and you into interact with lots of different organizations and just from a really broad perspective in your in your experience what what do cultural values have to do with health is there a relationship there well of course there is and quite a significant relationship um and the biggest i think the biggest um mistake i've seen repeated uh, over 20, 30 years, is people ignoring those cultural relationships. So I think, I think the likelihood is that it's more, it's really dangerous to ignore the fact that healthcare needs to be contextualized within a culture and within a society. Um, we've seen some real examples of this. People, for example, taking technology, technological solutions, which work in one jurisdiction, transferring them to another and being terribly surprised where nothing happens. They're not taken up. And a lot of that is, is related to culture. Um, and I think it's a, it's a bigger debate and a bigger issue than what we understand by culture. It's not only associated with, for example, people's perception of mental health, uh, which of course has to be contextualized perhaps even more than other conditions. Um, uh, but also around the way people respond to assistance, respond to engagement, and also their understanding of their responsibilities to a state. 
Now, this is actually quite complicated because what I'm saying is that a, a citizen has responsibilities to himself or herself uh, and their family and their carers, um, but also in some jurisdictions feel they have responsibility to the state, uh, which means, in essence, um, that um, uh, uh, their behaviour is altered by the fact uh, that the state is expecting them to do something. Do you have any examples of that? Well, I mean, you don't need to go very far um, uh, uh, in, 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 and, sorry, dig very deep because you can see that easily. A typical example would be Japan. Um, uh, in Japan, for example, there is a history of low vaccination. Um, uh, and this is something which has always, you know, it's always been there over, cent- well, it, it is a century or so, perhaps, because vaccination hasn't been around for many centuries. But um, uh, so the Japanese tend not to get vaccinated quite as much, both childhood vaccinations and older people's vaccinations in particular, things like herpes zoster and uh, now, of course, COVID and everything else. And with the COVID pandemic, uh, it was really noticeable that um, uh, older people were not being vaccinated when they really needed to be vaccinated. And it was really difficult to actually change that really societal way of working until um, uh, uh, the state determined that what it needed to do was really talk to older people about their responsibilities to the state. And they responded really quite quickly and vaccination uh, rates went up really quite quickly because they felt they shouldn't be a burden on the state. Now, that, that wouldn't happen in a lot of Western countries. No. Um, 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 I can't see people, I, I live in the United Kingdom, uh, being terribly worried about being a burden on the state because they feel the state perhaps uh, isn't behaving in the way they wish it to. But that sort of trust and respect um, is, is, is really important and a really important driver. That must have been a really interesting conversation. I, I hate to call it a marketing plan, but how do you get that message across to a population that might be averse uh, to changing the way it feels about vaccinations in this example? I, that had to be, uh, that's, that's a risk to to approach that and try and change the way everybody thinks. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. And who who best to actually put that across? Is it a government? Is it uh, uh, an organization that represents older people? Is it uh, who best to do this? And the answer is everybody, actually. Uh, I was I was involved in this process and um, uh, it really was fascinating watching it happen uh, because um, um, it was very systematic in the way it was addressed. Um, and the results really started coming in very, very quickly in a way which in in the West would prove to be impossible. I mean, really impossible. You, you, you wouldn't expect that to happen. There are other examples, actually, in different jurisdictions. I mean, you know, not only the obvious ones like Singapore, for example, which, A, because of its size, it's so small, uh, but also because of its long history of, um, you know, having a a well-understood compact between citizen and the state where messaging is actually accepted far quicker. Um, Also in some European countries, perhaps, I mean, you know, Finland comes to mind because it's the most trusted of all governments. So um, uh, suddenly you get into a situation where um, uh, a government suggests something and people actually accept it and take it up. 
in the United Kingdom, I, I remember all too often uh, being in a position where um, uh, um, I was worried about government suggesting something because I knew the effect could uh, often be an inadvertent, uh, exactly diametrically opposite one to the one which was being suggested. So it, you really have to be conscious of the culture you're in. You have to be conscious of the importance of the different aspects, uh, the people within those cultures, within that culture, uh, the status of older people, the status of, of, of uh, uh, older women in matriarchal societies. Um, um, you know, th these, these issues are important. You've touched on something that um, I had a conversation with uh, another guest about, and that's the difference between um, more individualist-oriented societies and collectivist-oriented societies, where the balance between uh, what you're talking about, the individual responsibility or uh, sense of respect toward authority and where authority and power lie, uh, that's very different in a lot of the West versus other parts of the world. And yet we also see hybrids where uh, people have, for example, more of a uh, government-provided health care system, to speak specific, specifically about health care. Um, but there's also more of a Western individualist kind of uh, approach. And that's got to create some kind of a clash as well. It can create a clash. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, the concept of population health is something we talk about quite a lot. I mean, in the United States, we talk about it with the population in question being the population of insured, because that is the unit of currency. There isn't a state insured. You know, there isn't that, that concept which exists in the United States. But in the socialized medicine approaches, um, which we see predominantly in Europe, but also more and more in other countries now, um, um, there, is, there is that issue of collective responsibility, responsibilities of the citizen towards the state that is offering or, or that is, that is um, um, protecting them uh, via a health system. I use the word protecting in, in inverted commas because it's not always very protective, the health system, if, if only it was. Uh, but um, uh, there, is, there is that interplay. But it becomes really interesting when one comes to think in terms of value, because when one starts talking about value, one can think in terms of value to a health system, uh, to an ultimate insurer, which is in essence what the state is, and value to the individual, because one would love for those two to be totally aligned. The reality is that sometimes they're not aligned. Sometimes they're actually quite opposed. Uh, and that creates some real difficulty, uh, both for the citizen uh, and also for the clinician. I was in that position trying to um, uh, suggest to somebody a course of treatment, which was clearly evidence-based. Clearly, I felt in the interest of the individual in terms of not only prolonging their useful life, but also offering the possibility of a cure. But the individual wanted nothing to do with this and actually wanted a different approach, which had no evidence and would, would likely lead to doom and disaster. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, uh, surely it should be up to the individual to make that determination, uh, not the state. Um, because the moment the state starts making determination, then we get into really, really muddy ethical water. 
where um, I, I, I really have difficulty in being part of a system which basically coerces people to do things they don't need to. Yeah, that's, that's another issue that you just brought up that's really powerful, is as a physician, you have to recognize people's moral autonomy and their desire to, you know, interact with the healthcare system or the economic system, what have you, you know, the way they are interested in doing it. And you have a, you know, you have to walk that fine line, exactly like you're talking about, between what is the evidence saying and what does the individual want? That's got to be tough. And it's it's another connection to health. Let's talk about physician burnout. Uh, That's been a really, really big issue with the pandemic, especially, uh, really brought a lot of that to fore with just uh, the, the medical community being completely overloaded. And then you have this additional burden of these ethical conflicts as well. Has that been something you The ethical conflicts witnessed? were always there, Rod. They're yeah. nothing new. The ethical conflicts were there from, I mean, my father was a physician, and I'm quite sure the ethical conflicts were there at the time when he first became a physician at a time when penicillin didn't exist. And I remember talking to him about penicillin, actually, around a a very limited supply and who he treated. So you have those ethical issues then, um, uh, you know, as as real and as in your face as they are now. So I don't think that is the issue which is leading to burnout. I don't think also COVID actually accelerated the process. Um, There are many causes of burnout, but... um, the, the, the practice of, of assisting people and healing people has changed so fundamentally over the years um, that uh, you can't compare the lot of a physician, even in the 1980s, to the lot of a physician today. I graduated around 1980, 1979, I think, or 1980, something like that. And I remember the first couple of years when I was in practice, in essence, we had about 30 drugs we used to use. And out of those 30, we used to use 20 very often and the other 10, not that. Oh, sorry, it's more than 30, but the others we used to use very rarely. In essence, there were a small group of drugs we used to use. Um, And we used to use them on people um, uh, to a degree indiscriminately. You know, a, a male over the age of 35 who had hypertension tended to get the same treatment. The concepts of personalization were not quite as developed as they are now. Um, and how many pathways did I have to remember as a physician? I don't know, a dozen, 20 perhaps, different pathways that I really knew very well. Uh, how many are there now? How many thousands are there now? Um, how does a physician actually manage to remember these with some difficulty? Hence the importance of things like clinical decision support in this whole process, because you can't work nowadays like that. Also, there was another issue which contributes to burnout or didn't contribute to burnout then. It's the issue of assurance. And I call it assurance. In some countries, there are inspectorates that look over medical practice to ensure people practice safely. Now, we always had a process of assurance to a degree, but it was more informal. Now it's far more formal. Um, And there is a big difference in the way people are educated. I'm doing some teaching, medical student teaching at the moment. And it's really interesting. One of the subjects I'm teaching is ethics. Um, They don't really like it at all. 
they really, really don't enjoy this at all. Um, and they're smart kids, but they don't enjoy it. Um, and they don't enjoy it because it lacks the certainty that they prefer to live within. Um, they live within, they would prefer ideally to live within a very binary world whereby you did the cer a certain number of investigations, uh, at the end of which you reached a putative diagnosis. You then did even more investigations to reach a definitive diagnosis. And at the end of the day, you then followed the guideline and treated the patient, and that was it. But this issue of case-by-case -case assessment and guidelines, which are guidelines, but clinical judgment needs to be exerted in every case, uh, and uh, uh, nuanced arguments, uh, and a question of discretion, they find this really quite difficult and very muddy and not very comfortable. Management of risk, which is something which I was brought up to do, is not something people are very comfortable to do anymore. And I haven't talked about litigation either. But basically, there's that behind it. How do you see them breaking through that discomfort? Is it possible? That's interesting, isn't it? This is what I'm spending some time with the head of the medical school. We're trying to figure out a way to actually assist people to do this. But there are a lot of cultural norms around, certainly within socialized health systems in Europe, uh, around people getting the appropriate treatment and it all being, um, uh, and when, when that doesn't happen, people then asking why and seeking redress, that is putting an awful lot of pressure on clinicians, especially given the complexity of not only the health systems, but also the treatment pathways, which are now completely personalized. And we haven't started with genomics yet. God only help us. With precision medicine, it's going to get even more binary, but even more difficult to manage decision-making. I would think patients expect that binary world too. They want more certainty. Wouldn't we all? But life ain't like that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you brought up the, the idea of uh, clinical decision support and the technology that's really grown a lot in the last decade. Uh, do you think it's living up to its promise? What seems to be working and what really isn't i think i mean you know the technology to a to a large degree is now so well understood and so well developed yes of course it's going to get better and yes of course we haven't even started with ai to see what the potential is but in essence the technology is is fine the problem and the problems exist is the interaction and interface between the technology and the individual both the clinician and the person who's being treated in, in both directions. And if I have to choose a place where things are not working as well as they could do, it's the humanity associated with the deployment of technology, or rather the lack of humanity uh, associated with the introduction of technology. Uh, because people always relegate this, technologists in particular, um, tend, not always, tend to renegade this to those soft issues around adoption. I think they're so damn hard. They're so damn hard that we call them soft because we don't understand them. But actually, they're, they're harder than the, than, than the things we call hard. Because, because that is the biggest break. 
And if you manage it well, the biggest potential um, uh, breakthrough, really, in treatment you could possibly get. At that point of interface, where, where, where is the humanity issue here? Is it at the user level? Or is it in the expectation of the technology and how it's being applied? I think in both, in both fields. Uh, at the human uh, interface, because we don't understand how disruptive technology can be unless it's incorporated within clinical flows. And in terms of deployments, the people who are deploying need to comprehend and really, really get under the skin of the people who are tasked with, with, um, um, with deploying these new technologies. Uh, because suddenly changing a consultation is extremely difficult. Um, and people think it's relatively straightforward. Well, it isn't. Here you are, you've got 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes to see somebody you often haven't seen before to somehow gain their trust um, to the extent that they'll tell you things that they thought they wouldn't tell you. For you to perceive and to see and to, and, and to infer uh, um, uh, uh, things which perhaps they haven't told you, but as we know, nonverbals are really important. At the same time, you're trying to figure out what they really want to tell you. Um, you then do what you need to do. You could examine somebody. You could, and that in itself is a, a pretty cathartic situation because you may have to disrobe somebody. Um, uh, 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 after that, you may have to give somebody bad news. Sometimes you don't, but quite often you do. Uh, and at the end of all of that, you need to pick up the person who's probably in pieces at the end of this into a state whereby they can actually function on the way out as well as give them a plan and everything else. And you do this quite a few times a day, uh, at the end of which you're absolutely destroyed mentally because you've taken on all that information and, and you've also uh, been working really hard and acting and assisting and worrying and looking. and <laughs> So it's, it's a big deal. And wading through the uncertainty. Yeah. That process that you're describing also has huge cultural differences as well. I mean, there are people yeah. in your practice, I'm sure, that you uh, see who come from very different mindsets on how to interact with a physician and what to actually share and what's, what they consider to be relevant and not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was lucky enough to practice in London. And one year we took a, a survey. I remember we took a survey of the number of countries because I was, I was interested in who, which were the predominant countries, you know, where, where people came from. Uh, London being a melting pot, of course, like New York, that sort of place. Um, and um, we had practically every country on earth um, uh, uh, as uh, 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 one, one or more of the people who registered. There was no pattern at all. We even had Inuits from, 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 um, uh, from the North Pole. Um, um, so th there was, there was, there was every, everybody was there. So suddenly you're going to have to cope with um, issues of language, issues of big issues of culture. Um, and of course, you need 
as a clinician, not to be unidimensional yourself. You need to ensure that you are as receptive of the messaging and the and the and the um, uh, codes you're being given by people to assist them and to be able to push back when sometimes they're they're going in a direction which you would suggest to them that may not be necessarily in their best interest. At the same time, respecting their opinion as you do that. Do they teach that skill in medical school? Yes, I think they do. That they do teach. That they do teach. That that has that seems like it would go kind of hand in glove with the ethics. Yeah, yeah. This is part of the same. Yeah. This is part of the same thing. No, that they do teach, and actually, in 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 it depends what sort of discipline you're 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 um, uh, you're interested in and you're following. But they do that to the extent you know that that is a significant part. The art of the consultation, the seven parts of a consultation that you have to go through, but. It is very tiring. <laughs> well, let's switch gears just a little bit here. Mm. Um, one thing we hear a lot about is transformation and, you know, improvement and, you know, change in, in, in health. Have you any examples of organizations, be it a public health department or an entire country, what are some pitfalls that they might fall into uh, when trying to improve outcomes or even to think about the future and where they want to be? Is there a perspective that is failing or succeeding or better off in, in trying to uh, make massive changes? I think irrespective of whether you're dealing with a country, a small organization, a small practice, it's the same issues uh, you're, you, you have to face. Um, and those issues are the motivators that, that actually make or suggest to people that change is possible and change is desirable are very, very variable and are, to a degree, relatively unpredictable. I say to a degree, yes, of course, there are things which, if you do them, they clearly don't work in a certain culture. And there are there are there are approaches which um, uh, really help in other cultures. Uh, We've talked about this already. A real typical example being our Japanese older people and vaccination, for example. Uh, You know, we know the route to go into to go down to actually assist people with that change. I think having having a a uh, an open mind as to what works is very useful. Doing the appropriate research is very useful. And also, even using things like gamification, in other words, extrinsic um, motivators, be it money, be it, um, I don't know, vouchers, whatever, be it something, something which people want, be it affinity points in a store. It doesn't matter what it is to a degree, but you, you, you often need something to start with to assist people with that change, to motivate them with that change until they get the intrinsic motivation to actually drive that change internally. Um, And there are many examples of this. And I'll go, I mean, I keep on going back to Japan because it's just so easy to find examples there. Um, They have a system there of um, uh, uh, an annual check for um, every individual over the age of 40 um, to pay for social care as they grow older course they are the super aging society so everyone knows they're going to need it or the vast majority of people are um 
But one of the things they do in terms of behaviors is if people manage their risk reduction behaviors better, in other words, if people um, uh, manage their um, uh, smoking or alcohol consumption, they give them a discount in terms of their um, um, uh, social care insurance, which is um, something mandatory um, in the country and everybody has to buy that. And that's obviously a, an, an obvious um, uh, bonus if you behave. Well, the United States is very similar with insurance premiums uh, being reduced if you, if you uh, manage your risk reduction behavior as well. That's a typical example. I have a question for you about, and you've mentioned public health a lot here today, and what are some approaches to public health around the world that seem to be showing promise? Is there anything innovative that you're seeing that is really out there and working who's taking chances what's what are you seeing that you, it, that's exciting you well quite a few people are taking chances are trying to address um um particularly cardiometabolic disease in other words the diseases which we all were brought up with people of my generation of your generation cardiovascular disease diabetes the dementias uh, to really manage those risk factors at scale and at pace for populations. Uh, and utilizing technology to do that. By technology, I mean iPhone, uh, iPhones, telephones, um, uh, or rather uh, data on mobile devices rather than the phone itself, sometimes, usually. Um, it's a computer um, that well happens as, to make phone calls. But it, it's a computer it, yes, it that makes phone calls. It also happens to make phone calls occasionally, <laughs> not too often, though. Um, so, so, yes, there are many examples of how of, um, of countries trying to do that systematically. Uh, Singapore has been doing that for many years, really trying to manage its cardiovascular burden. Uh, now, some of the Middle Eastern countries are starting to do that at scale. Uh, Europe has a long history of attempting to do that with varying success, but um, uh, certainly with more success than not doing anything. Um, and some examples of, of uh, health interventions um, that are particularly uh, successful um, are ones which, to a degree, happen so imperceptibly that nobody noticed. I mean, I'll give you one lovely example, and I think it's salt. Um, management of salt in people's food. If we go to the United Kingdom, we, had a, well, we still have a significant problem with hypertension as we, as we age. But... Um, um, a couple of years ago, perhaps 10, 15 years ago, some, well, probably about 15 years ago, actually, a decision was made we're going to reduce the amount of, 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 of salt, which was present in certainly in processed food and uh, also in, in things like bread, um, which contains quite a bit of salt. And the decision was taken, it was made public, of course, it wasn't hidden behind a wall, there's no conspiracy here. Uh, but the uh, decision was taken to do that over a period of four or five years. Um, and in those four or five years, all that happened was the amount of salt which was present both in food and in and the manufacture of food was reduced very, very slowly. So if I had to eat the food in 1998 that I was eating in 1992, I, wouldn't, I would say, my God, this food's salty. And if I had to do the converse, I wouldn't want to eat the food in 1998 because it wasn't salty enough. But I was quite happy to eat the food in both 1992 and in 1998 because I didn't notice the damn difference because the reduction was so slow that nobody noticed. Now, 
of course, that's a wonderful situation where you could actually introduce improvements to healthcare without anybody noticing and actually without the cost of, um, of, the, of, the, of the product increasing dramatically as a result. I mean, take sugar, for example, within food, processed food. It's actually quite complicated to remove sugar and probably quite expensive because the things you replace it with um, can be more expensive than the sugar you, you replace. Um, um, so it's, it's a much more complicated process. Um, I mean, that's an example of, of, of something relatively easy. In a lot of other places, I think education comes into, and habits and, and, and um, um, fashion comes into things. Um, uh, for example, it's now, it's now not necessarily de rigueur for somebody in uh, university to get, you know, to go down to the pub and actually party and get absolutely headache the next morning from uh, overdose of alcohol as a matter of course, at least once a week. And there are lots of people who actually have given up on alcohol. <clears throat> I'm not saying everybody should give up on alcohol. That's up to each individual. But um, it's not as fashionable uh, to get drunk as it, I'm not saying it ever was fashionable, but certainly to, to drink was fashionable. It's not quite as fashionable in all places as it used to be. It's not as fashionable to smoke as it used to be. Fashion is important. And clearly, if you're managing any public health intervention, trying to introduce systems where you tick all the boxes you need to, if you can sort the fashion issue out, wow, that's a good help. If you can sort the motivation out, that's a good help. If you can substitute, that's a good help. That's the sort of approach that works best. Another culture yes. intervention, if you will, and it could be a generational thing too. Um, yep. it, it's, it's really interesting how it all ties together. Is there anything else that um, you'd like to bring up that I haven't asked you about yet or that hasn't come up? Where do you start? No, this is a good conversation. There is a lot to discuss, and um, if you would be so gracious, we might have you on again uh, on a future episode. But I want to thank you for the time you've taken, so thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was a lot to take in, but uh, a really good discussion. Physicians have to walk this fine line between doing what's right for the patient from an evidence-based medical perspective and doing what the patient wants. And cultural differences further complicate every step of the way when trying to respect both sides of that line. And as Dr. Alessi discussed, COVID certainly added a whole new level of urgency to do the right thing for both the individual and for the population as a whole. While the introduction of technology has absolutely improved some aspects of the care and the data gathering process, technology has also stumbled a bit when it comes to building intuitive interfaces that everyone can love. Technology, of course, doesn't design itself. People do. We must get better at creating human technology connections. That's all there is to it. And we must also focus on what's really important. If it is truly care and improved health, then our systems, be they bureaucratic or technological, will reflect that baseline value. Dr. Alessi made a fantastic point about certainty. 
Despite everything we do with science and technology, the world is a messy but fascinating place. And the best we can do, it seems, is to act in accordance with values that respect individuals and cultural variances. And I was really happy to hear that medical students are uncomfortable with ethics. There are no simple answers. There's no certainty, regardless of the advances we've made. And when we confront that complexity and the discomfort, we can grow as a society. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Respecting Health and that some of what you've heard today shapes your thinking and stays with you. If you've got comments that you'd like to share or a guest you'd like to hear from, you can contact us by email at feedback at respectinghealth.com. And you can also leave comments on our website, respectinghealth.com. Once again, I would really like to thank our guest, Dr. Charles Alessi, for sharing his thoughts and his valuable time. I'm Rod Pahofsky. Join us again for the next episode of Respecting Health. Thank you so much for listening.